This is Hope FM. Well, I'm delighted. Joining me today is Pastor Pete Cunningham, and he heads up a ministry called Green Pastures, and we're going to be hearing all about that today. So welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Well, I know we're going to talk about the ministry, but it would be nice, first of all, to talk about the man himself. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Well, would you like me to start? School years or <laughs> yeah, onwards? Yeah, yeah, sort of filling where you came from and your school. And yeah, I was born in Stoke Newington in London and I went to a primary school there. And then my father bought a property out in South Woodford and we moved out there and I went to my secondary school there. And then on leaving uh, secondary school, uh, my parents became Christians. I thought they'd gone crazy. <laughs> so I left home at 15 and got sent home by the police from Newquay. Still when I was 15, my mother, who said, you're not laying in bed all the time, she found me a job in stockbroking and I went into stockbroking until I was 24 when I went into the ministry and I got married and uh, we moved to Wigan to train. We had our first child there, John. And then uh, we had uh, a second child called Simon. Then I pioneered a church over in Bramley in Yorkshire. We had our third child, Andrew. And from there, we went to Bishop Auckland, where we had our fourth child, which was Suzanne. Then we moved back to Wigan, where we had our fifth and sixth child, Nathan and Dawn. And then I moved to Southport when I was 53 to a church that they say you shouldn't go to because uh, you go to seaside towns to die if you're an old preacher and never go to a church where they've all got one foot in the ground. My congregation was eight spinsters, the youngest of which was 76, and all the rest were octogenarians. And uh, we began the work there, and that's where I still am. Oh, wow. That was a very swift biography, very comprehensive. Uh, I'm interested about the stockbroking. So did that drive you into the city in London you had to work? Oh, yes. We used to catch a tube train every morning. And because I had a good maths uh, brain... Um, they put me onto the stock market as what they called a blue button. I was an unauthorised clerk. I think if I had remained there, I'd become one of the dealers. So one of those wealthy young men that we have today that wheel and deal in stocks and shares. Well, that financial background obviously was going to help you uh, in the future, uh, as we'll find out. So you mentioned about your parents becoming Christians and uh, you thought they'd, they'd gone crazy. So they, they must have been been a point in the whole of this where you became a Christian yourself so do you want to share how your faith journey began? (laughs) Well that's quite complicated because um, my father went to to the Old Bailey he was tried there for embezzlement and uh, while he was in the cells below the Old Bailey waiting for his trial a man came along who was a Christian talked to him about Christianity and he became a Christian in the cells below the old Bailey. And when he, he arrived back home, because he wasn't sent to jail, he had a very heavy fine, um, he sent um, myself and my brother and sister to different churches to discover where we ought to go. And uh, my family settled going to a London city mission with a, an Irish preacher who used to preach um, fire and brimstone every Sunday night. 
and my mother, my sister, and my brother became Christians, and I thought they'd all gone crazy. And uh, I was very rebellious all through my teenage years, very angry, very violent at times. And uh, I rejected everything they had. That's why I left home when I was 15. And um, it was um, November 1963. Um, I'd gone out to the Goldsmiths Academy Art Ball. I was working in stockbroking. So I was going to some fancy parties at the time. I knew different people like um, the Honorable Duncan Barber and Sir Hugh Sykes. And uh, the Art Academy was very boring so I drank too much fell over in the live art studio paralytically drunk couldn't get up my friends found me there at two o'clock in the morning took me home stayed in their flat and arrived home Monday night after being away from Friday and my father became very angry with me and said right well you're not living here anymore I'm sick of the way you live your life and um, said pack your bags you've got to go so I went to my bedroom, I packed a suitcase and came downstairs. And on the doorstep, my mother uh, pleaded my cause and said, Harold, what will become of him if we let him go? And my father relented and he said, right, well, you don't come in here drunk anymore. You don't have any women round here anymore because I was quite a womanizer. I was 21 and uh, so that was that. Now, my brother, who never saw, ceased to tell me that Jesus loved me, which I hated, <laughs> in fact, hated so much, one day I smashed a beautiful eight-day clock on the floor that his uh, fiancée had presented to him when they became engaged. Oh, my so goodness me. I used to get very angry with him, and uh, he came in, yeah. knew there had been ructions in the house. And so, of course, Paul, being very brave, Never missed the opportunity, said, would you like to come to a youth meeting this Saturday night? Now, I had lots of parties right lined up for Christmas. And I thought, if I go to uh, a church on Saturday, my parents might begin to think I'm going to change my colours, which I'm not going to do, but I will deceive them into thinking that way and I'll get off to all my parties. So I went and... Um, they had a preacher there, must have been 75 if he was a day. He was very portly. He wore a suit, a waistcoat, watch chain. He had jowls going down onto his chest that wobbled when he spoke. And I sat at the back and laughed my socks off and said, they called this a youth meeting and they've got this <laughs> man here with one foot in the grave. Oh. And so what happened was... Um, he preached, but something he said remained in my mind. He said, young woman, young man, if you've never given God the opportunity in your life, how do you know it doesn't work? And that remained with me uh, for the next six weeks. Uh, I got to my parties and uh, I had the most wonderful uh, New Year's Eve party I'd ever been to. And uh, I came home about two o'clock in the morning and I woke up about half past seven, quite early, and eight o'clock it was getting light, and um, I decided to get up and get dressed, and what shall I do? And it was Sunday morning, and I thought, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. It's New Year's Day, I'm gonna make some resolutions, and I'm gonna change. And I said, I think I'll go to church. Wow. 
So I walked down to my brother's church, and when I got there, I was there too early. So I sat, I remember exactly where it was. I was the fourth row from the front on the left-hand side, and I sat against the wall. And there were four other seats in the row after I'd sat there, five seats in the row. And then the church began to fill up, and they began to sing worship songs. And I felt like a duck out of water. Mm. And I said to myself, if ever I get out of this place alive today, <laughs> I will never go to church again. Oh, dear. And then a man I didn't know from Adam, as they began to break bread, stood up, and he began to prophesy. And it was as though he had an open book of my life. I was embezzling my firm. I was going out with three women at the same time. I was virtually an alcoholic. I had abused my mother. I had stolen the rent, never paid any. And he began to enumerate things that only could apply to my life. And for the first time in my life, I became aware of a righteous God who knew me totally and absolutely completely. And I wanted to escape from the presence of this righteous God to the state I wish the ground would open my, up and swallow me from the presence of God. And then he said, God loves you. And if you give your life to him, he will never fail you and he will never let you down. And as what I thought a tough young man of 21, I began to weep. And I wept. And I said, God, if you can love me like that, you could have my life. It was as though uh, a ton weight fell off my shoulders. I felt like I was a meter off the ground. And I left that place completely and utterly transformed. When I got to work on Monday morning, we had most probably 20 young men in the office there. And about 10 past nine, I jumped up on the desk. I said, guys, I want to tell you something. I've given my life to Jesus, and I am totally changed. That was a brave thing to do. Well, they threw lumps of paper at me and things like that, and <laughs> cheered and booed and said, it won't work. You'll be where you normally are And how the week. And how did the family react to it? Because obviously they felt that, you know, you were on the edge of all this stuff, not likely to commit yourself to Christ. So they must have been quite surprised. I, do you know, I really can't remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It's over yeah. 60 years ago. Uh, well, you did well with the other details as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, I suppose my family were absolutely delighted that the change came over me. And it was a radical change. Great. Uh, well, we're going to switch to your choice of music, and you've picked a great hymn, uh, And Can It Be? So why And Can It Be? Because even today, I cannot believe that God loved me enough to die upon the cross of Calvary to forgive my sins, because my sins were many and were all washed away. And it says, and can I be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's love? Died he for me, who caused him his pain, for me, who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's hear the song. And can it be? 
This is Hope FM. So, green pastures that you head up, why that name? Well, that was a very strange incident because um, I'm a very sort of withdrawn person and I don't like to make a show of anything. That's why we've never advertised Green Pastures greatly and it's most probably the biggest charity housing homeless people in the country at the moment. But um, uh, we opened a shop and I called it Shop and... Our church, I didn't want it known by its name, so we named it by the street we were on. So we were the church at Argyle Road. And that's my thinking, just name it what it is. And I was just going to say housing. And the lady who put the major amount of money into the first house we purchased, she mortgaged her property for £25,000. When we started and we bought the first house, she said... Can we call it Green Pastures? So I said, why do you want to call it Green Pastures? And so she said, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, yeah. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And then she said, I've always wanted to bring peace and tranquility to those that are most in need. So when a lady comes along and says that to you, what can you say? But okay, we'll call it Green Pastures. <laughs> it was definitely a done deal. So uh, that's how it started. So when it started, what did it aim to do? It aimed. We we had about thirty people that were really rough sleeping, either sleeping under the pier in Southport or on the golf course where they used to put tin sheds up for people to go to the loo. Uh, when they were on the golf course or uh, sleeping on a park bench and there were about 30 of them and our aim really was just to try and get these people off the streets and into a house and put some TLC around them which Christ said we needed to do as the church we needed to love the people that were marginalised and care for them so our aim was 30 people Right, and how did it develop from that perspective? Presumably, you managed to house those 30 people. Well, we house about 6,000 now, so that's a lot more than 30. <laughs> yeah, but it definitely meant... We, we believed we were in the will of God in what we were doing. And because we believe we are the body of Christ, and so the body of Christ is across the nation, no matter what denomination you've got on your forehead, you're still part of the body of Christ. And so we, we have grown organically. People have heard about us and they've inquired of how we do it. And we've been to, from Land's End to John Groats to talk to people or they've come to visit us. And some of them have said, well, we have a need. Do you think you could buy us a house? And the scripture says, if someone comes to you that has a need and asks you for help, don't shut up the bowels of your compassion. And so because we've had the finance to buy the houses for them, we've made an arrangement. You're like the hand, we're the arm. We'll put the hand where it can do the work. But you need to look after the people because the Holy Ghost is talking to you about your town. He's talking to us about Southport. So we will help you to buy the property. By buying the property, you can put the homeless people in. You care for the homeless people. We'll care for the property. So Southport was the beginning and obviously expanded immensely. So was it in that area of the country 
century that the beginnings first began to develop. So you move from Southport to where did you go next? Well, the, the, it, the first one that came to us was really a shock. It was a, a chap called Roger Howarth, who was a prison tra- chaplain in Shrewsbury Prison. He's an Anglican minister. And he phoned us up uh, out of the blue and he said, we've got a young man called Peter here you, who you have housed in Southport. And he's asked if he could come back to you. He's been coming to church in the prison is it okay? So he said, yes, bring him up. And Roger came up. He would have been about 50-ish. Lovely, lovely, godly man. And you could see the presence of God on the man. He was beautiful. And uh, he said, can I have a look round? Well, we were housing about seven years in. We were housing about 70 people. And we felt we'd, we'd completed the job in Southport. There's only 60,000 people there. And and uh, when we sat down with him afterwards, he poured out his heart of how good it was in prison to see people come to Christ. And then they would arrange to meet them when they came out. So they started another thing called North Staff's Chaplaincy. And they had got an office uh, below the YMC tower block where they had flats. And he said, when we arranged to meet them at McDonald's or Costa Coffee or somewhere like that, they don't turn up. Mm. And the next time we see them is when they come back to prison in 21 months' time or two years' time. And really? it's so sad that this is happening. And our hearts were really stirred by this man. And uh, he then shocked us. So we're sitting there feeling almost tears in our eyes about the the sadness of the operation that he's running. And then he said, uh, I don't suppose you can buy me two houses, do you? (laughs) Of course. Hang on a minute, we've just met you. You haven't (laughs) asked us for a tenner for your charity. You've put your hand in our back pocket for 120,000 quid. So I don't know how many people have asked you for 120,000 quid recently. Uh, Not many, thankfully. (laughs) So again, the scripture I've already quoted came to us for the first time. If your brother asks you for something, and it was as though the Lord reminded us that this wasn't our work, it was his. And our property had all gone up in value. And we had mortgage companies saying, have some more money. And we said, we don't need any more money. We're housing 70 people. We're very happy where we are. And it was as though the Lord said, I've given you this money so you can help people like this. Yeah. So being challenged by the Holy Ghost that we needed to help him, we said, okay, we'll buy you two houses. And so within the next month, that was about November, in December, we went down one Saturday, we viewed five properties, we made offers on three, we bought two, we delivered the first in February and the second in March. And this wonderful man... He must have been delighted. He, he was over the moon. But this wonderful man, within five years, was housing 120 ex-offenders, and half of them had come to know Jesus. Oh, and brilliant. the reoffending rate had dropped from 65% to 4%. That was terrific. Brilliant success story. So we were story. so excited about that. Well, that's a joyous story, but... We- If you had to sort of look at the ministry where it is now, what are the greatest joys you feel as a team and as a person heading this up? Oh, the the greatest joy is that this last year we had about a thousand people come to know Christ. And uh, one of my favourite scriptures is, He that wins souls is wise. 
And so every day we get up and say, Lord, help me to be a wise man and try and win someone for you because that's what we're all called to do, serve Christ and win souls. And this way is certainly one way that people can get involved in seeing people come to Jesus. So your second piece of music fits really well with that. It is a joy unspeakable. <laughs> so wh why that? Well, of course, it is true, isn't it? The more we get to know Jesus, the more joy is in our lives. And of course, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's so important to maintain that joy within you every day. Let's hear the song. This is Hope FM. So you've described your background working in the city as a stockbroker. Obviously, the finance background there is really important. But as you've also described the things that you were doing in terms of green pastures and purchasing houses and sorting out mortgages and expanding in the way that you did. So how, how did you get all the skills to be able to do that? Well, some of them we've learned on the way by mistakes we have made. So we, we have dropped some clangers on the way and you learn then from the clangers. But some of those skills, I suppose, uh, were already there with me. Um, during my life, I've been involved in Christian work in buildings. So I've built an extension on a church. And then um, about uh, 40 years ago, I took on an old holiday centre and we turned it into a, a modern youth camp and children's camp. And so we built buildings there and I learned how to bricklay and oh. how to paint and decorate and things like that because we didn't have the money to employ skilled people to do it. So it's all done on a shoestring and God helped us mightily there. And we, we bought, built three very large buildings where we could house 65 people. So uh, I learned some skills uh, of painting and decorating and uh, doing different things like that. So, of course, some of those skills came into use when we first began. So like the third house we built, uh, bought, it, it had a flat downstairs, a, a flat up in the attic, but the rest of the rooms were all bedsits. So we had to put up some studded walls and we had to knock through some walls and make doorways and things like that. So Vicky and I, we actually did most of the work. And then another guy who was a builder came along and did some, helped us with it. So we've done some changes to places. We've decorated places because at the end of the day, we we needed that skills. Um, when it came to, of course, mortgages and things like that, I did understand that from my background of being in stockbroking. And so we were able to look uh, across the market and make sure we got the best deals we possibly could when we were buying property on mortgages. And so we have developed that. On caring for people, there are skills you have to learn as you go along. So on occasions, we have had to evict tenants and we've made real messes about going to, to the, the law courts and, and putting in the claim against the person. They, and they throw it out and say, you've got it wrong, you've done this, you haven't done that. 
And so sometimes we've taken 18 months to get people to move. Now, I mean, there are things that happen, like we had one tenant who used to throw things out of the first floor window that he didn't want, and he'd throw televisions oh, out no. of the window. Well, you can't have that because if it falls <laughs> on someone, then you become liable for the tenant's action. Right. And, and we could have a claim against it. So there are things like that that we've... We've had to learn on the hoof, and it's been quite painful to have a, pay, a, a tenant who throws things out of the window to take 18 months to get him to leave the flat. Yes, not, so, not so, ideal. No, no. Uh, so things like that have happened. We had one tenant who was a heroin addict, and he got onto methadone, and then he went back onto his heroin and injecting, and he stole a copper tank out of the flat he was in and flooded it. And we said, well, we ca you can't do that. And then four weeks later, he stole the three copper tanks out of the three flats above him, flooded the whole property. We couldn't use it for six months. We said, we have to evict this man. But we praised God because he was arrested front by the police and uh, he was sent to prison. So we didn't have to evict him. No, no. <laughs> but those are things you learn on the job. Yeah, learn on the job. So you've described a few challenges there, but because of the size of the operation, there must have been other big challenges that you faced uh, in order to try and progress the developments you've described. Well, the other challenges I suppose we have faced is the fact that when we, we, we get houses in multiple occupation, and that is always difficult to uh, go to the council to apply for the licence, and sometimes they, they are quite onerous or they don't want you to have a house in multiple occupation there and you, they turn you down and you have to appeal against it. So there are other, other things, again, we have had to learn uh, on the job uh, and how to overcome them. So at the moment we have a real problem in Scotland because <coughs> if you're looking after people, even two people in a house, you have to get a licence. And that hasn't been easy for us to, to uh, get those licenses. So we're developing in Scotland at this moment in time. So uh, big challenges. And of course, because you're housing homeless people, um, I suppose that there are people that are not that sympathetic to that. I mean, a lot of people would be, but when it has a practical impact in one way or another, either because of the neighbourhood or whatever, that must be a challenge itself. Strangely enough, it hasn't. Really? Yes. In the 23 years we've been doing it, I could count on one hand the opposition we've had to buying a house in an area. Oh, that's brilliant. And um, sometimes the opposition turns into real joy that we've made a good job there was one where we bought four flats and the rumor got out it was going to turn into a drug den and we had three or four of the neighbors come and complain to us and uh, what we did we didn't put heroin addicts in or anything you know, we, we put people that had problems and we worked with them and their lives improved we redecorated the outside of the property put double glazing in improved the property and of course the property then goes up in value. And so I was very cheeky with a neighbor who was very belligerent next door to the property. 
and after sort of 18 months of having no problems and the property going up in value I said uh, I hope now we've sort of quietened your mind and I'm sure your property has gone up in value because we've improved the one next door to you <laughs> so I wasn't I was a bit carnal in my nature when I said that to him. But I thought, the man had been so difficult and his house had gone up in value because ours had gone up yeah. that I would remind him that we had actually done a good job and we've become friends since. <laughs> Great story. Um, and you talk about we a lot in that and uh, obviously you're very significant in this organisation but obviously there is also a team. So what sort of team have you gathered around you to be able to do Green Pastures? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, there was three of us, and for the first two years, until we had about thirty properties, um, we we uh, worked together, and then we employed our first person, John Mitchell Cook, who who looked after the administration for us, very good, and now we've grown to uh, about a hundred and twenty staff. We we have at the present time. And that is a big jump from those three to start with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So God has been with us. That's the whole thing. We, 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 we have found that when we've been obedient to what the Lord has asked us. I mean, when we bought the first house, we told the Almighty it was a daft idea because we were going to <laughs> put alcoholics in. We'd invested our own money. The property would go down in value because they'd kick the door in if they didn't have a key and they'd punch holes in the wall and they'd have friends around and the kitchen would be wrecked. And yet, after nine months, it turned out to be such a wonderful success. We had to apologise to the Almighty and say, we got it wrong and you got it right. <laughs> but it, it really has been this step of faith, step of faith, step of faith. And, and you would be amazed, I would think, at least during this journey, um, two or three times a year, we have to make a leap of faith. I mean, someone came along to us and said, uh, "Want to buy, buy thirty-nine a block of thirty-nine flats for for a, a million, uh, one point two million. And we said, "God, what do we do?" And we felt the Lord say, "You you need to venture out." And so we paid one point two million. Now, um, last year we we bought a Bible college for three million. That was a step of faith. God, this is this is going to cost us half a million pounds a year to run it. And it turned out that they bought a six and a half acre field for this college, and they had got planning permission for seven houses along the front. And when we met the architect. I told, he said, I told them I could get more on the back. We'll get five million pounds for developments on that, that which will cover the three million pounds we've spent, plus pay for the running of the the college for the next five years without any prices at all. That was amazing. This year, someone's given us four million pounds worth of property. Brilliant. Yeah, obviously, God knows better than we do. But that, that's the whole thing, isn't it? We're serving the Lord. And, and, and to, to me, continually, you, you, you need to step out in faith when he comes and points his finger and says, you need to do this. And sometimes you go, oh, my, that's too big. When we bought our first house, the third house was £165,000. The first one was 25, the second one was 27. Vicky Hums running into the office said, I have found the first house. And instead of driving us down where the cheap places were, she drove us to where the wealthy places were. And we sat outside this marvellous detached house with a, a rambling old sign that had been hand painted and a bit of plywood that was all jaggy around the edge.
sketch and all the paint had run down. I thought, whatever she brought us to it, saying for sale. So I said, how much is it? She said, 156,000 pounds. I said, 150, where do we get 156,000? But God helped us. Yeah. Well, that leads us really into your next choice of music, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. And if anything, in the story you've been told, it's a, a majestic story. So why this song? Well, this one describes who he is. And he is, and I don't know about you, but every day when I get up, I just have to tell Jesus I love him and he's wonderful, he's marvellous and he's so gracious and he is majesty. Worship his majesty unto Jesus, unto Jesus. Let's give him praise and glory and thanks. This is Hope FM. So, if a church has a, a mission to uh, look after homeless people, uh, could be in the locality where the church is, uh, could be even further afield, uh, and they want to try and put that into action, uh, and they come to you and say, can you help us? What are the sort of practical things that need to happen? Well, first of all, if a church um, sees they have a need in their community, and that can be many and varied because our partners, some of them are looking after asylum seekers, but some of them are looking after fail asylum seekers who have no recourse to public funds. Uh, We have people that look after ex-offenders, uh, and they care for them, and the reoffending rate drops from 65% to 4%. So you might want to do that. You might just want to look after street people. You might want to work with the council to house people that are in temporary accom- uh, accommodation. So that's families. You might want to look after trafficked women. You might even want to look after children's that open the children's home. It depends on what you feel the Lord is speaking to you about in your area because as one body, as I've explained, that's what we are. We believe in your town, the Holy Ghost is talking to you about what you need. So first of all, you identify there is a need here. And then when you approach us, what we begin to do is we begin to challenge you on how you're going to meet the need because you're going to have to look after those people. God is speaking to you about those, not to us. He's talking to me about Southport still. We work in Southport. So at the end of the day, you need to begin to assess where you're going to get those people, those leads from, to bring them into the accommodation. You also need to look at the team you need to get around you. So if you're going to have a house that's housing four people, we would suggest you have at least one who's a volunteer who's going to spend going into that house perhaps twice a week to see what the needs are. And they're very practical needs of people. So it might be they're short of food. Have you got a food bank near there? Perhaps they can't handle their finance. Can you help them with their finance? Perhaps they need clothing. Perhaps they haven't got a doctor. Find a doctor for them. They need to go to a hospital appointment. So by doing this, we show the love of Christ in our actions and activities. So you need someone who is going to be able to do that. 
the, the property will need some maintenance. So you need to find someone who say, yes, I can paint, I can decorate, I can put a door, door lock on or I can repair a door. So you've got people that can come in and do the thing. So the kitchen door comes off of the kitchen cabinets, I can put that back on. You need someone who looks after your administration because you need to go to that particular person you put in the house and you have to help them fill in their housing benefit form or their their local community tax or whatever it is that needs filling in you need someone who do that administration and then when the rent begins to pay be paid to you directly you need someone who can account for the rent coming in mm -hmm. make sure that is paid over to us because we've got the mortgage on the property and someone's saying i need five percent for the money you've loaned me so we need to have that money coming to us so we can pay our investors and then you need someone really to overall manage it now initially you can do that with volunteers and usually if you've got a church of 40 people you can manage to house at least one house with two people in so once you've done that you fill in the application form and that's quite lengthy because we've been doing it a long time and there's lots of things that the local church will not think about doing so it will say have you got the people we've just mentioned in there have you got the contacts for people who will refer people to you are you working with your local council? Are you talking to the people that are in housing benefit that you might need to speak to? You might need to talk to the people who have a problem in the council. They cannot house this group of people. Could they refer people to you? So all those things we will help you with. So there's no problem in that. Now the other question that people ask us is, well, uh, does that mean the church commits itself to pay the rent? Yes, it does. The reason being, we know that if you have a lease from us, you can get additional rent. It, it's, it's got a name, and that is called uh, a, a housing benefit, which is free from the restrictions of the local housing allowance. So it's an additional benefit you can get. And that means they will pay you maybe £15 just for looking after the person, which comes into your pot. Mm -hmm. So there are monies that come into your pot because you are on, and it's called exempt accommodation. So in that sense, you agree to pay that rent to us because it comes to you because the council insists that you have at least a six-year lease to show that you are really going to be looking after people. We produce all the information you need about the amount of money you need to claim. So all that's done for you. So we work with you. It's a partnership. It's truly, we are the body of Christ. How do we help one another achieve? And so we want you to achieve your aims in God. We want to release you to the ministry you are doing. So uh, people say, well, what happens if we don't get the rent in? That's fine, because we're brethren. So uh, some people fail on the first year and get in rent in and we say, okay, we'll write it off. We'll write off £5,000. The maximum we've written off is £40,000, which is quite a chunk of money. And very. And we, do, we don't say to the person, you're a failure. We say, praise God, you've had a go at doing it. That's the most important thing. Great. Lots of people don't put the toe in the water. 
So there is there is no debt that you will really incur, although there will be a debt, but we will write that off because you've had a go at doing it. But we do encourage you to try and get the rent in so you don't get into debt, <laughs> which is important. But we'll hold your hand every step of the way. And then once you, you've got one house running, we find a lot of people go on and take more houses on. That's why at the moment we're housing maybe five. 6,000 people across the nation. So although we only own about 1,500, we've encouraged them to go to local landlords and to get extra property that way so that actually they are able to house more people in their community. Does that cover it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's obviously a tremendous partnership and the experience that you've got benefits all these other people. So you talked about Southport, you've talked about um, North Wales. So you've got properties or churches doing this all over the country? Yeah, we go um, 50 miles from John O'Groats. We've got property out there. <laughs> we're, we're down in Cornwall. So we're down there. We're in cool rain on Northern Ireland. We're over in Boston on the uh, East Coast. So, yeah, uh, we're from Land Centre, John O'Groats, who is down across the country. So at the moment, we have now um, about 90 towns we are in uh, with property. We're in about 130 towns where we've got new partners on board that are looking for property. And we've just expanded our team, which uh, communicate with churches from seven to 14. So we are looking um, at the end of this year of us buying property house 450. But then every one we buy, our partners buy three. So you can see that's basically going to be 1800 this year. And the year after, we, we are looking to house a 1,000, which means we should house uh, 4,000 people on that year. So we're, we're aiming within the next five years to be housing between ten and 15,000 people. So you have a vision there, five years. Does the vision extend further than that? Can you see a picture of what, where you want to be in 10 years' time? Our chief exec has worked out that in 26 years' time, we could end homelessness if we continue to grow at the rate we are. Now, the beauty of this is, at the moment, the church is irrelevant to the nation. When we end homelessness, the church will become very relevant to the nation because it will cut the number of people that are in prison. So the, uh, the courts will be less busy. The police will have more time to catch criminals. Instead of only catching 15%, they might catch 30%. <laughs> you're going to have the prisons with less pressure on them society will feel safer just in that one area and of course the other thing is you've got people that are in temporary accommodation there won't be temporary accommodation any longer which will help the local council enormously so local government and national government we believe we believe the church should be the head and not the tail. So we want to see government coming to us and saying, you've done a great job, now can you help us with this one? Yeah, absolute great vision. Um, so you've got a final song, which when I saw the title of it, I thought, why has he picked this, even though it's one of my favourite songs as well, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. So what, why that? Well... I don't think that carols should be just sung at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ virtually every day of our lives. 
And I think it's just wonderful to remind ourselves that the Lord of glory came to a stable. The humility that Christ shows us in his birth and in all of his life is something that we all ought to want to emulate. It's humility that we need in our lives so that we can serve God better. This is Hope FM.